uh, the glories of Jesus. Uh, be with me as I preach. Help me to be faithful. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Today's Palm Sunday. As you can see, we have a couple palms here uh, just to, to liven up our, our live video here. But it's the day that we celebrate the triumphal entry of the, our Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. And for the next two Sundays, we'll be shifting our study from the Gospel of Mark uh, to look at the Passion of Christ uh, this week, Palm Sunday, next week, Easter. And this morning, we will look at the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah in 9.9 that was quoted by uh, the Apostle uh, Matthew. Uh, that it is fulfilled here uh, by Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. And next week, we'll look at the hope of the resurrection through the lens of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. And just so I, I'm clear as to why I chose these two kind of more obtuse texts, you might think, why isn't he just doing a gospel text on this, on this Passion Week? I wanted to say, because I'm going through the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going to come to uh, these texts in the Gospel of Mark as we walk through it. And I thought I would save it for that time. But these texts also get at um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the topics at hand. So with that, let's turn to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. Hear God's word. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pits. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it's a funny thing that one day a year we might wave some palms around. Um, that's a funny thing, especially considering that we live in an area without palm trees of any sort. If you were in Florida or you were somewhere in the tropical areas, you might do this. It might be natural to take a branch and cut it and wave it around, but, but we do it, and we do it in commemoration of the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Interestingly, Matthew and Mark both mention the laying of palms down on the, on the ground as well as cloaks. Um, Luke doesn't mention palms at all, um, and John just mentions they came to him and met him with the palms. Uh, it's, it's just interesting, the differences. But it says nothing of laying the palms down or the cloaks for that matter. But three of the four gospel writers saw some significance in the palm branches and for Matthew, Mark, in laying them down before Jesus as he walked into the street, rode into the streets of Jerusalem. 
Um, so what is the significance? What, what is the reason for the palms? Well, palms pointed to various things in that ancient world, wealth, honor, victory. Um, and here, Jesus, the great king, was riding into Jerusalem to bring the people victory. To bring the people victory. Um, little did they understand the nature of his kingship or of his victory. After all, he was worthy of all the honors bestowed on him that day and so much more. And yet, by the end of the week, the victory parade had turned into a death march and then finally into a funeral procession. It's hard to imagine the emotional roller coaster of his disciples. One moment the city was turning out to usher in their king and the next moment the city was crying out, crucify him. Nevertheless, Jesus remains the king. Jesus is the victor. He came and he conquered our greatest enemy, sin and death, and he ushers us into his kingdom of peace. And this is the cause for us. This is the cause for us to celebrate and rejoice. And that's why on this day we sing Hosanna to the king. And to meditate on the coming of the king, we're going to go back some 500 years uh, from the time of Christ to a period of time when the nation of Israel no longer existed. They had been conquered and taken into captivity by Babylon, but at this time, around 500 BC or so, God's people were under the control of the Persian Empire, which had allowed them to return to Jerusalem. They were allowed to go back to the city and to rebuild uh, to they gave them permission. They wanted to go worship in their, their, their holy spot. And so they, the, the, the Persians said, that's fine. It was, a, uh, it was sort of a way to appease uh, people in their, in their community and sort of gain control over larger spans. And so he, they let them go back and they were rebuilding uh, Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple and the city walls. And uh, during that time, they faced various discouragements. And they faced various oppression. And they were, they were tempted to fall back into idolatry, old patterns. So Zechariah, along with the prophet Haggai, was sent by God to strengthen them in their work, to call them to repentance, and to remind them of the hope of salvation. And in particular, in our text in chapter 9, Zechariah reminds them of the hope of a righteous king who would bring salvation and peace. The prophet calls them to rejoice and to behold for their king comes. And this hope of a righteous king who brings salvation and peace is not just for those ancient Jews, but it is for us. It is for the whole world. It's the hope of a victorious king who comes, King Jesus and our call is to behold him and to rejoice in our victorious king. We'll look at this in three ways. First, our king comes to us. Second, he came in humility, bringing peace. Finally, he comes as a conquering and victorious king. So first, our king comes to us. Our king comes to us. The text begins this way. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. And we've already touched on the sort of broad brushstrokes. I brought you back a little bit already. Um, the exiles who'd returned to rebuild 
and the prophets who are speaking to encourage and to call uh, the, the people of Israel to repentance and faith. And they were also not only calling them to encourage them, but they were calling them to look forward. I think it's easy for us to get discouraged when our horizon is too near. And I think that was the case for those early returnees from uh, from uh, Babylon and Persia back to uh, Jerusalem. There was a lot of discouragement involved because their horizon was so near at hand. Um, when you go hiking, oftentimes my least favorite kind of hike is the kind that is just through the trees in the woods. It seems to go on and on and on and on. But it's those great hikes that when you get up to a prominent position, you can see out and see where you're headed. That gives you encouragement to go on. Um, prophets like Zechariah, like Haggai, gave visions to help encourage people to press on or, or to warn them away from certain dangers on differing paths. They said, here is the grand vision. Uh, well, the immediate context is the promise of a king coming to conquer their foes. If we were to go back a few verses to the very first sec section of chapter 9 and verses 1 to 8, it's all about judgment on the nations, um, particularly nations that had oppressed them. Though there are even in the midst of those words of salvation uh, for the nations as well. But it's generally a picture of, of judgment on the nations. And then in verse 8, uh, there's this really interesting thing that is that the prophet says, or the Lord says through the prophet, he says this, I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor, oppressor shall again march over them for now I see with my eyes. It is a picture of this conquering king coming and then standing in the midst of his people, in the midst of, of the, the kingdom, and setting guard, keeping out uh, all those that would do his people harm. And as we move into our text, there's a sense of uh, this turning to look at who is this one who stands guard, who encamps himself in the house. And what we see is it is the king, the king, not just any king. But the text says your king, speaking to Israel, your king. Uh, your king meant something to them. It was a, a reminder of the promised king of old, the, the, the son of David, the messianic king whom they had hoped would reestablish the kingdom of Israel. It's interesting how the disciples saw Jesus as the fulfillment of this prophecy. It, it means they knew these words here in Zechariah 9. It, it means they had been trained over the years since their childhood to long for the coming of the Messiah, the King. And I kind of wonder how many times the words of Zechariah 9 were read and reread over those 500 years. 500 years. Your king is coming. Your king is coming. I, I pictured kids hearing that and saying something like, when do you think he'll come? And the parents say, oh, I don't, I don't know. And the kid's saying, well, is it really going to come to free us from, from all these nations that are over us? 
Well, that's what he says he'll do. That's what he promises. And then the kid will say, well, what is it? What does it look like when he comes? What will it be like when he comes? Well, he says he'll come as the righteous one with salvation. Oh, I can't wait for that day. Me neither. Me neither. As the parent longs for it as well. 500 years of longing and waiting from generation to generation. The text promises that he is coming and yet a long time passes. Yes, the Jews were allowed to return and rebuild, but really they were ultimately pawns here under the Persians, later under the Greeks, even though there was at that time even a false hope under certain rebellion that happened. Um, But in the end, they found themselves under the thumb of Rome. They were not free. They remained in bondage. And so they continued to wait in hope for the Messiah King, 500 years. But herein lies the hope. Jesus instructed the disciples to go and get the foal of a donkey. You see, Jesus also was well instructed in the word after these are the words of his father. And he knew what they meant. And he had come to fulfill them. He had come to set his people free, to dwell in their midst, to bring salvation and peace, to conquer his and our enemies. So when he rode into Jerusalem that day on the foal of a donkey, the whole city understood what he was proclaiming to be. They understood it. Their king had come. I think it can be hard for us to make connections with ancient texts like this one especially ones that deal with physical enemies. We aren't subjugated by nations. In fact, really, we're, we're quite free as a nation. So I think it's helpful to remember that while the Israelites faced real subjugation and oppression from external enemies, that wasn't their ultimate issue either. That wasn't their real imprisonment. In fact, the reason they found themselves in these circumstances was due to the real power that was holding on to them, the power of sin, the power of death. It was on account of their sin and idolatry that they were sent into exile in the first place. It was on account of the sin and idolatry of the oppressing nations that they would eventually be brought low, that they would be destroyed as well, that they would be brought into judgment. It's interesting as I think about our current situation, uh, it's going to sound strange, but I think there's a, pro- there's a providence to this. There's a providence in our home arrest, if you will, in our fear of going out and in the power of this virus. I think it stands as a, a physical reminder of the power and effect of the fall on our world, the corruption of the fall In a way, the tyranny of the virus reminds us that we too need to be set free, not ultimately from a virus, but it reminds us of the power of sin and that we're powerless to save ourselves. In other words, we need a king to come. And this is the good news. He has come. And he came righteous and having salvation. 
He came the first time not to set us free from all the ravages of a fallen world, but to free us from the bondage of sin and death itself. But there is a truth that he is coming again. And if anything, these days have made me long for that day. To fix my eyes on that horizon of hope. That someday we will be free, completely free of all the ravages of the fall, of all his and our enemies. But this brings me to my second point. The king came, but he came in an unexpected way. The king came in humility and bringing peace. Jesus purposefully had his disciples get the foal of a donkey, foal of a donkey, a young, unridden, unblemished donkey, in order that he might fulfill these words here in Zechariah 9.9. The text says, Your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The first thing that we note about the coming king is that he comes humbly. Now, I wonder how unexpected this really was, because the Old Testament is full of this kind of humility language with regard to the Messianic king. In the prophet Isaiah, we hear these words, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But it wasn't just the prophets who envisioned a humble king. Go all the way back, way back. Remember, we studied Deuteronomy. Well, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 17, we're given details on what a king should be like. In this description, not only should this king not acquire great masses of uh, wealth or horses or wives or anything like that, but most significantly, he was to be a man under God. Hear this description from Deuteronomy 17. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. Did you hear that? And his heart not be lifted up above his brothers, that he would be humble and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. We see Jesus as the epitome of the humble king, one who had all the glory of heaven, but who didn't hold on to it. He didn't grasp hold of it, but he let it go to become like us. More than that, to serve. He didn't put himself up above his brothers. And ultimately he died for us. Jesus came as a humble king. But the second thing that we notice is the donkey. We got to talk about the donkey. I think it's a strange symbol in our minds because donkeys are what? Funny, right? Stubborn, dirty. They're beasts of burden. Well, we tell people not to make a donkey of themselves. Of course, we use different language. 
the older language for the word donkey, but it's a negative concept, the idea of a donkey. Yet I think we miss the purpose of the donkey in the prophecy if we fill the text with our idea of what a donkey is. One of the very earliest prophecies concerning the Messiah is found at the end of Genesis and the blessing of Jacob to his son Judah. In that blessing, Jacob prophetically said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. It's this grand picture of uh, Judah's son, one who would come that would be this great king. But immediately following that verse, it continues to describe this king, this Judah's son. And it says here, this is the king. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He, was, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestiture in the blood of grapes. That, that may sound a little strange, but what it's describing is his royal accoutrements. And it includes his donkey and his vineyard and his royal robes that have been dyed purple by those same vineyard grapes. But it's not just that enigmatic text in the end of Genesis that we see royalty associated with donkeys. Mephibosheth, a good friend of David, uh, ultimately, um, gave David donkeys as a gift. You know that? As a gift. He gave it to the king. It was a kingly gift. But then further on, David, when he's passing the torch to his son Solomon, says, have Solomon ride on my donkey. And it was for Solomon's coronation. These are just a few references, but there are more. But what we see is that the donkeys aren't negative. Rather, that we see is that they're associated with royalty. So what is their significance then? Here's their significance. Ready? It's not a horse. Well, of course it's not a horse. It's a donkey. It's, a, it's not a horse. But that's important. David had horses as well. Solomon also had horses. But what were those horses for? Battle. My son says battle. They're war horses. So what is most striking about this prophecy of Jesus riding on the colt of a donkey is not his humility. Though I think they would rather not have had him be humble but that he was coming peacefully, that he wasn't bringing war. It was a symbol of the peacemaking mission of King Jesus. And, and we know this is the case from uh, further down in our text. If Look at verse 10 with me for a minute. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus' coming humbly on a donkey was a proclamation of peace to the whole world. And king and the peace that Jesus brought was not peace between nations, wasn't a peace between Israel and Rome. King Jesus came to make peace between God and man. He came to reconcile us to God. Going back to what I said before, our captivity is not fundamentally 
a captivity to the powers of the earth or even the corruption uh, uh, that, that is in our bodies, though that is represented uh, of, it represents the, the, the powers that have control over us. The real captivity is to sin and death and to the evil one. And the real problem is that apart from this king coming, apart from the king coming and the king setting us free, here's here's the really dire news. We are complicit captives. We're complicit captives. We rebelled and continue to rebel as those apart from God. And we join with the enemy, the one who holds us and binds us also gives us all the tools to rebel. So yes, we're captives, but we're complicit. You see, if Jesus came on his war horse that day in Jerusalem, he would have conquered his enemies. That's a certainty. With a single word, all of his enemies would have been vanquished in that moment. But that would have included you and me and everyone everywhere. In this time, as we see the ravaging effects of the corruption of the fall on our world through this virus, it ought to remind us of the drastic nature of sin and rebellion, that it deserves the wrath of God. But here's the good news. Jesus came on a donkey. He came to make peace. He came to reconcile us to God. And this brings me to my final point. He came to make peace, but nevertheless, he came as a conquering king. Don't don't misunderstand his coming on a donkey. Many in the city of Jerusalem rejected the humble king riding on the donkey. They thought they wanted the war horse, Jesus. But uh, that was a, a bad decision, and they're glad they didn't get. But they wanted one who would come and fix their earthly woes, one who would rescue them from Rome and reestablish the worldly kingdom. But that was not Jesus' mission. He came to conquer his and our enemies, that he might make peace between us and God. Notice this language in verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. You see, it was always going to, be a blood, going to take blood to make a relationship between God and us. It took blood to save Abraham and his sons in circumcision It took blood to save his son, Isaac. It took the blood of the lamb to deliver Israel from Egypt. It took the blood of the offerings to propitiate the sins of Israel. But of course, those were just promissory acts, signs of the once for all sacrifice of the covenant that the Messiah would come, would make on the cross. Jesus, the night before he was betrayed after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the remission of sins. See, King Jesus came to conquer death and sin. And the only way was through his own death. King Jesus 
comes with salvation and peace, for he comes to offer himself up as the Lamb of God. He comes to set us free. And the text ends with a glorious picture. It's a glorious picture. We're no longer prisoners of death and hell. Instead, it says we are prisoners of hope. I could read this in maybe two ways. One, you could read it and say, uh, we're, we're prisoners with hope, who still have hope, that, that look out to the, to the final day when we will be set free ultimately. Or you could look at it another way and says, we can't help but hope. We're prisoners to the hope of that hope, set in a stronghold established by the king through his work. Either way, either way, what a picture. We're no longer prisoners to death, no longer prisoners to sin. And there is a promise in here that that the king of kings will come again. He's come, but he's coming again. And in that day, he will come on a white horse. He will come on that war horse and he'll come to conquer. But we can rejoice for the king of glory has come and he has brought us peace through his blood. And we can rejoice for we know that when he comes again, he will establish forever from one end of the earth to the other. It says from the river, from the center of the earth, all the way out and around from the river to the ends of the earth, he establishes his kingdom of peace. And that day it will be complete, finished. No more death, no more disease, no more sin, no more sorrow. And so we can sing Hosanna to the King of Kings. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.